So now we get into the announcement of John's birth and who he is going to be and what his purpose is. Verse 14, joy and gladness will come to you and many will rejoice at his birth. This boy is going to be joining, bring joy and gladness to you, but not just you, but to many people around you. Because this boy is going to be the prophet that announces the coming of the Messiah. And the first prophecy of the Messiah is Genesis 49, 8-12. through 12. And God makes it very clear that when this messianic figure, this king comes, the scepter and the ruler's staff will, he will carry, and he will tie his donkey, which is a symbol of kingship, to the vine, which is wine, which is a symbol of the abundance of joy, the abundance of light and hope and peace. And he will be clothed in garments that are stained with wine, joy, peace, life. And his eyes will be dark with wine. Character will be joy, peace, and life. And his teeth will be white as milk. Milk brings life to newborn babies. And he will bring life his words. And so this Messiah will be unique in the sense that it will bring joy and peace and hope and abundance of life in a way that nobody else has. And John is going to be the one who announces that coming, which means that, that announcement is going to bring the abundance of joy and life. And so this is what his purpose will be, not just for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but for all the people around him, the whole nation of Israel. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be a great prophet. This is a very unique description given to people that he is going to be great. God, the world may not always see him as great, but God will. He must never drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. This not being drink wine or strong drink, many scholars believe that this alludes back to a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow can be found in chapter 6 of Numbers. And basically it's a vow that any Jew can take where they want to put themselves in a greater level of obedience and righteousness to God. And in this vow, God makes this clear that you're not allowed to drink any alcohol fermented in any kind of way from grain or honey or wine or grapes or anything. And even though they were allowed to drink wine, the Nazarite is not. They're not allowed to touch any dead bodies. Even though Israel was allowed to touch dead bodies, they just become unclean. The Nazarite is not even allowed to do that. And that they were to let their hair grow out long as a sign, a covenant sign like the wedding ring is to marriage, to the Nazarite to represent that they're part of a Nazarite. And the only First Testament examples we have of this is Manoah's wife, who were not given her name, who gives birth to Samson. The angel tells him that she and Samson were to be Nazarites. And then Hannah is dedicates herself and her son Samuel as a Nazarite. And then later in the Second Testament, we're told that Paul took a temporary Nazarite vow um, in the book of Acts. And so this alludes to the fact that he might be a Nazarite, though it doesn't specifically says he's to be a Nazarite, which makes you think, well, he's not a Nazarite. He's just not supposed to have drink alcohol. But at the same time, alluding to part of the Nazarite might be just and be good enough for the Jews to understand that this is a Nazarite. But whatever it is, the real focus here is that he will not be controlled by alcohol, but he will be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Alcohol is a very big part of our culture and a really big part of the Roman culture. And alcohol is at any celebration, 
most celebrations, graduations and weddings and parties and games and barbecues have alcohol. And it's not uncommon for people to get drink too much. And especially when John's going to bring joy and hope and wine, abundance of wine is characteristic of the coming of the new kingdom. God is making it very clear that even though there's going to be an abundance of wine, joy, it's not going to be something that wine, the negative parts, the bad things of alcohol are not going to control. But the real emphasis here is that he's not going to be controlled by the things of the world. He's going to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what's going to fill him and control him, even from the point of the birth. Now, what makes this unique is that in the first testament, the Holy Spirit didn't fill people. It didn't indwell people. It only came upon them and rested on them temporarily. And you could, the Holy Spirit could leave once the purpose was accomplished in your life, or if you had sinned, it would leave. And the Holy Spirit didn't indwell people or live in them because the only way the Holy Spirit can come into you is if you're without sin or you've been atoned for through the blood of Christ, and the blood of Christ hasn't come yet. John is going to have this filling, and how that's possible without the blood of Christ, I don't know. But what makes him unique is that he's going to be filled in a way that nobody else has ever been in the history of the world. And this Holy Spirit's what's going to dominate him and guide him and lead him and control him, so to speak. And this is what's going to make him unique among all the other First Testament prophets. So verses 14 through 15 is how he's described what is going to be characteristic of him. Now in verses 16 through 17, we're given his purpose. And there are four main purposes that he's given or four main ways that his purpose is described. And first, he will come in the spirit of Elijah. So verses 16 through 17. He will turn many of the people of Israel to their Lord and their God. And he will go as a forerunner before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, uh, the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared for him. So the first thing that he said to be is that he will come in the spirit of Elijah. Now in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 and 4, 5 through 6 this was a prophecy that the, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the new Jerusalem, the cosmic mountain, the return out of exile, would be marked by the coming of Elijah, that Elijah would return. They thought maybe Elijah would come back since he disappeared. But when it became very clear that he was not coming back because lots of time had gone by, then they did not. they thought maybe God would just bring him back somehow. This does not refer to reincarnation, nor do we does it refer that Elijah himself would specifically come back? This is why a lot of Jews at Passover keep one chair empty, just awaiting the day that Elijah would come back. When John is asked if he's Elijah, come back, he says no very clearly. When Jesus asks if John the baptizer was Elijah's coming, Jesus says yes, but only in the spirit of Elijah. So what Jesus is saying is that that prophecy was not saying that Elijah himself would literally come back, but a prophet would come in the spirit of Elijah, would continue the same ministry as Elijah and do it in the same way. Now, this is significant because the nation of Israel is bookended by Moses and Elijah slash Elisha. Moses begins the nation of Israel. Even though there are prophets before Moses, like Abraham, Israel doesn't become a nation officially until the exodus out of Egypt when Moses gives the Mosaic law and begins to lead them. So he's the first prophet of the nation of Israel. 
the last prophets of the nation of Israel, so to speak, is Elijah and Elisha. Because they're the ones that did miracles and guided Israel and, and led the kings and even warned them that if they violated the law, they would go into exile. But the people began to sin. And after Elijah and Elisha, the prophets that came after them, Isaiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Nahum, all of them, they're not really leading Israel in a prophetic sense. They're basically telling exiles coming and this is why and there's you need to repent. And it's less about guiding Israel and more about warning of the exile, telling them it's coming and giving them prophecy of the time that Israel will become a nation again. So they're announcing the end of Israel as a nation and the prophecy of them becoming a nation again in the new Jerusalem. And so Elijah, Elisha kind of symbolically represent the end of Israel as a nation. John is going to come in the spirit of Elijah and not the spirit of all the other prophets who are pronouncing the end. They're, he's going to guide Israel and point them towards God and help them see who God is. In the same way that Elisha asked for the same spirit of Elijah and got it and continued his ministry in the same way, John is going to do that as well. He's going to minister like Elijah, talk like Elijah, and say and do this a lot of the same things as far as the message of God goes. He is the long-awaited prophet that's going to bring the new Jerusalem and the redemption of God. Second, John would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children. This is an allusion to Malachi, verse, Malachi 4, 6. And it talks about the prophets restoring the relationships of the father and child both ways. The point is that John's ministry would bring families together. Fathers and sons, or fathers and children, tend to be one of the most broken relationships in cultures. Even today, the relationship between fathers and children is one of the most broken relationships. It doesn't mean that every father and child relationship is broken, it's just one of the most. And in the time of Rome, parents, fathers looked very lowly on children. Children were a nuisance, they were in the way, they were insignificant. And the only reason you had children is so that the mothers could raise them to become adults, and then they would be significant once they became a man or a woman, and to have extra hands to work in the fields or whatever it was. And fathers were often disconnected from their children. The whole culture was okay with that. The whole culture basically said children were to be seen and not heard. And you didn't really have to do anything with a child as a father. And in fact, a father legally, according to law, could beat their child physically for whatever reason they wanted. And there would be no consequences. They didn't take children away from you for beating your children. And they certainly did not encourage you to write books or do podcasts on how to connect to your children. And when your children became adult, then they would take over the business. Then you would take them under your wing. Then they would become significant figures. And so one of the most broken relationships, John's ministry is going to begin to heal that and bring those people together. Therefore, if, he can, if his ministry, if his message, if his plan of redemption, if God's plan of redemption through John can restore one of the most broken relationships in this time period, then it can restore any broken relationship and it will heal all relationships. Third, John's ministry restored the disobedient people of Israel back to wisdom and righteousness. It would actually bring obedience to Israel. They would no longer be foolish and act in their sinful desires, but they would then be led by wisdom and actually want to obey and be able to obey. And this is very important because 
Paul in Romans in chapter 6 says that we're enslaved to sin and death and we have no choice to obey sin. We're so enslaved to sin that we want to sin. We like it. Even though there's a part of us who doesn't want to do that or doesn't like the consequences, there's still a big part of us who wants to do it. That's why we do it. And so we're enslaved to this. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy basically says that we as humans are a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people and that we're constantly going to rebel against God. And our only hope of actually wanting to obey and being able to obey God is if we have our hearts circumcised. And the only way that our hearts can be circumcised is that the Holy Spirit indwells us and begins to change us. And that's only possible if Christ dies on the cross and atones for our sins, making us able to have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why in chapter 7 of Romans, he then says, why do I do what I don't want to do? And I don't do what I want to do. Who will save me, this wretched man I am? And so he's painting a picture of being enslaved to sin. No matter how much he wants to do the right thing or abstain from the wrong thing, there's a part of him who really just wants to sin and rebel, and he feels shackled and trapped, and there's no hope for him. Then when we get to chapter 8, he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit and says, I've been made alive through the Holy Spirit, and now I am free through grace and salvation, redemption, that kind of stuff. And then he talks about that the Holy Spirit is what circumcises our hearts. What this is saying is that John's ministry is going to announce the coming of the Messiah, who's going to atone for the sins of the world that will allow the Holy Spirit to enter into hearts, which will then circumcise our hearts according to Moses and finally give us the chance to truly, for the first time ever, to want to obey and to be able to obey so that our hearts will truly love God. And that this is the beginning of that. The fourth thing that John would do is make ready a people for Yahweh. That he would prepare the people for Yahweh for the coming of the Messiah. This is a quotation from Malachi 3.1, Isaiah 43.43.7, and 2 Samuel 7.24. And basically Malachi 3 specifically, Isaiah 40 specifically talks about the fact that On that day, a voice cries out from the wilderness, prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. And the Lord will make all mountains low, all valleys high, and make all crooked paths straight. Basically, any physical height or physical depth that is an obstacle to make it difficult for you to get to God will be leveled out and made flat, and every crooked path will be straight, and so the path will be smooth and slick and easy to travel towards God. And the prophet, the coming prophet, will prepare the way for this to happen so the people can easily come to the Messiah when he comes and does his thing. And so this is what he's prophesying. Now, he's not talking about physical mountains and valleys. The context of Isaiah and even in the Gospels make it very clear that the obstacles that are being removed are the hard-heartedness of the heart, the things in the heart. He's going to till the heart and make the soil of the heart ready to have the seed implanted in it. He can't implant the seed of the Holy Spirit into the hearts of people. Only Christ can do that through his atonement on the cross. But what he can do is make the soil fertile and ready to receive the seed. And so everything about John's ministry is to bring, to announce the beginning of God fulfilling 
his long-awaited and greatly detailed plan of redemption seen all throughout the First Testament and to make the people ready for the Messiah to soften them. Darrow Box says this, John's greatness is not found in his choice of lifestyle, but in fact that in understanding his calling. He pursues it fully and carries out God's will faithfully. John's style will be different from that of Jesus. God does not make all people to minister in the same way. That diversity allows different types of ministry to impact different kinds of people. The point here is that it's not about John's style of ministry that God is emphasizing here. John will have one style, a very ascetic, absent, isolated style of very minimalist, materialistic, minimalist style. Jesus will be more about joining people in parties and drinking with them, and he'll be more public and gathering with a bunch of people. And and there's different styles in the Bible, and God never ever says this style is better than that, or you should have this style like that. A lot of people say we should get back to the First Testament church and how they did things in Acts. No, 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 no. The Bible never says we have to do it that way. In fact, a lot of people forget how screwed up they were. There was a lot of problems there, and they had to bring deacons in to solve the problem, and they wanted to exclude the Gentiles, and, and a couple of people got struck down by God for what they were doing. It's not about the style. The main focus of what makes you successful in ministry or what makes you a true faithful minister of God is knowing what God has called you to, knowing what your purpose in life and your purpose in the kingdom of God is, what God wants you to be doing and saying and doing it faithfully. That's what makes you successful. There are many different styles and many different denominations of the church and many ways of doing things. And yes, there are certain things that are obvious you shouldn't do it that way because that's totally unbiblical. But with a main purpose, the main focus for us is not the style of the ministry, but knowing God so well that we know what he wants us to do in word and deed, and then faithfully pursuing that because we love him and we want to be used by him. So this is John's characteristics. This is John's purpose in his ministry. This is what he will accomplish. Now the prayers that God has been answering is that Zechariah has not only been praying for the birth of a child, but he's also been praying that he would be able to see God unfold his plan of redemption. He'd be able to see the end of the silent years. He would be able to see the end of Rome. He'd be able to see the redemption of humanity. And so he's probably been praying for both of these. And now both of these prayers are being fulfilled in the birth of his child. They're all being fulfilled in one answer to prayer. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? For I am an old, and my wife is old as well. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place. So Zechariah, this righteous, blameless man, is not perfect he immediately responds with a lack of faith. He does not believe that God can pull this off. He doubts that God can pull this off. He doesn't, he's like, how, this, how is this possible? My wife is barren. This is not possible. This is incredible lack of faith right here. This doesn't mean he's a horrible, bad person. It doesn't mean that God made a mistake with him. It doesn't mean that he's not righteous. It just means that 
He failed to have faith in this moment. Even great righteous people fail and are flawed and have doubts and, and don't always show faith. This is what it means to be human. This is the problem. There are two kinds of testing in the Bible. There's the good testing where God calls you to test every spirit, every human, every prophet to see whether they actually come from God or not. God actually requires us to demand a sign from people when they come saying, thus saith the Lord, or God sent me, or God's going to do this. And the sign must be an immediate sign that's fulfilled. So if I prophesy something that will happen like 40 years in the future, you don't know whether you can trust me or not, whether that will happen. And so you can follow me for 40 years, and then when it finally happens, or, or I, when it doesn't happen, you've wasted your life. So I must give an immediate miraculous sign that's immediately demonstrated before you to prove that I'm from God. This proves, this is a good testing. This not test God's capability, nor his love, or his character. This tests whether it is him. And you see this throughout the First Testament where prophets will come and they'll say, Jeroboam, you're going to be destroyed your entire house for your sins. And the sign to prove this is this altar will immediately bust open spontaneously. And that's what happens. And we see this over and over again. But there's also the bad testing where we say, I don't know if you're powerful enough to do this, God, or I don't believe that you love me enough, or I don't trust your character. That prove it. Prove who you are. That testing's wrong. So that's when Gideon is like, you know what, God, I don't know if you can actually use me to defeat this army. So to prove that you're capable of doing this, turn this, make this fleece wet and the ground dry. And he knows it's wrong because he goes on and says, now don't be angry with me, but one more time. And anytime you say, don't be angry with me, it's obvious that you know that what you're doing is wrong. So what Zechariah is doing, he's doing the, he, he failed in both sense. One, he doesn't ask for a sign that the angel is truly legitimately from God. Now, he may assume that he is just because he's in the temple of God, but then he then tests God by doubting that he can do it. Now, Zechariah is without excuse because he has all these stories of barrenness in the First Testament where God miraculously provided them children, and then all the other stories in the First Testament. Abraham had no Bible, no multiple encounters with God, no stories of people encountering God, didn't really see that many miracles in his life. And God says, you're going to have a child. And he says, I believe in God Christ and his righteousness. Zechariah has all that and he doubts. And his punishment is he can't talk. And so this is the sign that God is actually, so God gives him a sign. He says, I'll give you a sign even though you didn't ask for it. You're not going to be able to talk. Bam. And you can't talk. And this proves that this is from God. And he doubts it. Verse 21, Now the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they began to wonder why he was delayed in his holy place. And when he came out, he was not able to speak to them. And they realized that he was seeing a vision in the holy place because he was making signs to them and remained unable to speak. And when his time for service was over, he went to his home. The unfortunate nature of this is this is one of the greatest days of his life where he is able to serve in the temple, and he is actually able to do the incense the thing he's wanted to do his entire life. And the next thing he would do is he would come out and he would give the benediction to lead the priests in the benediction of Numbers 6, 24 through 26. And yet he can't do that now because he can't speak. One of the greatest days of his life is still truly great because he got to do all this and God has just announced that he's going to have a child and his prayers have all been answered. But at the same time, it's also tainted 
by the fact that he can't finish out his great duties. He can't finish out the privilege of what he's doing because he can't speak the benediction. And so he misses out on the blessings of God because he did not have faith. Oftentimes, God does not punish us directly by doing things to us, but just allows us to miss out on the blessings that God could give us because of our lack of faith. After some time, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, and for five months she kept herself in seclusion, and she said, This is what the Lord has done for me at the time when he has been gracious to me, to take away my disgrace among the people. In contrast, Elizabeth responds in great faith. And Elizabeth becomes the model of faith. Elizabeth becomes the model of trust. Elizabeth is somewhat, for lack of a better phrase, the hero of the story. And that's, an off, that's a common theme all throughout the Bible, where the women are the heroes of the story or the great people of faith, even more so than the men. Now, I know that a lot of people often say, like, why aren't there more stories about women in the Bible? And why aren't there more detailed, longer stories about the women of, in, the, in the Bible? And, and a lot of non-Christians feel like this is a chauvinistic, male-dominated Bible that leaves out women. And this is another example why Christianity or God is messed up. And the Christian women know that's not true, but they still like wonder. But you need to understand it's actually a good thing that they're not the main emphasis in the Bible. Because the two major themes in the Bible are, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Basically, everybody keeps failing, and they're horrible sinners, and they suck, and they do bad things, and God has to judge them. And the second theme is that despite all that, God is faithful and pursues us and forgives us and shows us mercy and continues to use us to build his kingdom even to the point of redeeming us and use us to redeem other people. And these are the two most dominant themes all throughout the Bible. In this culture, where males are the dominant figures in the culture and they have the power and they have the privilege and they often oppress the women and the women are the minorities and the Gentiles, the foreigners are the minorities and they're usually left out or seen as insignificant, the men become the major characters in the story because that's the major theme throughout the Bible is that humans fail and they're flawed and they're dysfunctional. And so being the major character shows that flaws. You don't want to be the major character in God's story because it typically means that he's going to point out all your failures. The more time that you spend talking about somebody or spending time with them, the more you're going to see their failures and their flaws and their sins. And so that comes out with the men. But a lot of times when God does put the women there, he puts them there and they do incredible acts of faith. And, and what happens is that they end up showing a greater faith than the man does, or they do the will of God in a greater way, or they defeat the enemy in a way that the man failed to do, or they show a greater trust than the man was able to do. And, and God uses them in a very powerful way. And this way, he's leveling them or making them equal with each other. And he's showing you that these great prominent men that are lifted up in the culture and have the, most of the power are being brought low by pointing out their faults and their failures and sins but the women who are the minority and looked down upon are being lifted up and they're being shown to be great and they have faith and they can do just as much and have just as great faith and be used by God in just the same way as what the men can. And they're the minority in the story. They're, they're not emphasizing the story with the amount of space because that would begin to have to show their flaws. But they are emphasized by the way they shine and stand out. And so you see this where Ruth 
um, shows great faith um, when it's the time period of the judges and all the men are failing miserably. And Tamar shows greater faith than Judah, even though she's a foreigner and a woman. Same thing with Ruth, a foreigner and a woman. And Rahab shows up Achan in Israel by showing more trust as a foreigner and a woman than Israel does. And we see the, the mother of Moses who hides him away and mo- the sister of Moses that protects him and watches through him. And even the Pharaoh, the, the Pharaoh's daughter who rescues Moses and, and Abigail with David uh, puts David in his place and trusts God more than David does and calls him out on his sin. And we see this happening over and over and over again. And so what God is showing is that women do have great value. And so by not making them the focus, time and space-wise, he's not pointing out all their flaws as much as the men who need to be shown as flawed. But then he puts them in there and he shows them to one-up or be just as good in their faith and the way that God uses them. And this is the way God gives women great value in the Bible. Now, he's not trying to pendulum swing it away from the men to the women and show, okay, now we're all going woke and the Bible's woke and women are better than men. He's trying to make it level and make it equal. And so Elizabeth here, God is doing the same thing. And he's going to do with Mary too when she shows a greater faith than Zechariah did. And so Elizabeth shows great faith and her immediate trusting of God. So Darrell Box says this, Zechariah and Elizabeth represent two different kinds of righteous people. Zechariah raises doubts about the angel's message for the prospective parents are now beyond normal childbearing age. Sometimes even good people have doubts about God's promises. Elizabeth pictures the righteous saint who takes her burden to God and rejoices when that burden is lifted. So both of them are righteous, but sometimes righteous people don't trust God and they have doubts. And sometimes righteous people show incredible faith. So this is the birth announcement of John and the way that he's being introduced and the way that his parents betrayed. And here you see the faith of these righteous people and despite their flaws and because of their great faith, God is going to use them to give birth to the greatest prophet that the world has seen in a long time.